This is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio, episode 46, Atragon. Kaiju and Tokusatsu fans, and welcome to Kaiju Vision Radio, a podcast about the appreciation of Kaiju and Tokusatsu movies and discovering their historical and cultural value. I'm Brian Scherschel. In this episode, I will be covering the 1963 film Atragon. This wonderful film introduces us to the Gotengo, which is the name of the craft. It's not the Atragon, but we will get into that later. The related topics for this episode are Hiro Onoda and Japanese holdouts. A short description of the film is next. It is Kaiju Vision Radio's original plan for how to describe these films rather than summarize the plot endlessly. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. The Mu Empire is an ancient yet high-tech totalitarian civilization that lives under the floor of the Pacific Ocean. Their goal is to subjugate the rest of the world, making all other nations their colonies. This goal can only be accomplished if they prevent the Gotengo from being built and used to attack them. The Empress of Mu is the cruel and inhuman leader of the Empire. Manda is a sea dragon kaiju that guards the Mu Empire. The Gotengo is a multi-purpose warship built by Captain Jinguji and others under his command. It is equipped with a bow drill that can be used on enemies or burrow into the ground. The Gotengo can shock anything it touches with electricity. It can fire an absolute zero cannon, as well as electronic particle cannons. It can fly at high speeds, travel in water at high speeds, and at great depths. Goten means roaring heavens in English, with the suffix go meaning ship. Captain Hachiro Jinguji is dogmatically militaristic, places nation before family, and will not surrender. His goals are to take revenge on Japan's enemies and to restore the Japanese empire. He views the Gotengo as a means for accomplishing his goals. His daughter Makoto and commercial photographer Susumu Hatanaka are younger, worldly, and anti-war. Retired Admiral Kusumi is a thoughtful and collected man who put the war behind him years ago. Their goal is to persuade Captain Jinguji that Earth must have the Gotengo so that the Mu Empire can be stopped. The Mu Empire plot and the human plot are unified. As the drama in the human plot unfolds, the Mu Empire plot is constantly affecting them. The Muans and Manda are the problem. The only solution is the Gotengo. Admiral Kasumi and others ask the captain for the Gotengo to use against the Muans, and he says no repeatedly. The problem is solved when the captain changes his mind after the Muans attack his base and kidnap Makoto. He uses the Gotengo's absolute zero cannon to kill Manda and then destroy the Mu Empire's power room, which causes a chain reaction explosion and destroys the Mu Empire. The story is partially based on two books, The Undersea Warship, A Fantastic Tale of Island Adventure by Shunro Oshikawa and The Undersea Kingdom by Shigeru Komatsuzaki. The undersea warship, written near the turn of the 20th century at the height of the Meiji period, is nationalistic, casting Russia as the enemy. The story had to be updated to a post-war version as a result. 
The story is also influenced by 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and Mysterious Island by Jules Verne. The Moo Continent is from books by James Churchward. The screenplay was written by Shinichi Sekizawa. The Moo Empire plot is simple, but the human plot is complex, particularly regarding the conflict between the captain and other characters regarding how to use the Gotengo. The budget of the film is unknown. Production was rushed, and the budget was lower, forcing the creative teams to cut corners. Regardless, the special effects, directed by Eiji Tsuburaya, mostly look good. The effects regarding the Gotengo are the best, involving numerous different scale models with detailed moving parts. The effects of Manda were not as polished. The reason for Manda being a dragon is that 1964 was the year of the dragon, and the film was released on New Year's. The music by Akira Ikufube is among his best, with separate, well-developed themes that match the military and war-related themes of the film. Minimal stock footage was used for establishing shots. It is filmed in tohoscope with manural sound. The film contains both some light and some dark elements tone-wise. The Sekizawan humor helps lift the tone in the first half, but overall it's a darker film that covers heavy issues. The events in the film are treated seriously, as the fate of the world is in peril. With undersea empires, a guardian kaiju, and flying submarine superweapons, it's a fantasy film. Considering that the books this story is based on existed for a long time, this isn't an experimental film. At the same time, the film is unique in that it goes a different direction with previously established concepts. The result is a fresh film that creates its own world. The subjects covered in the story are slightly risky, though. Atragon is an expansion of style because it spawned subsequent films featuring iconic warships. It isn't as much of a kaiju film, it isn't a disaster film, it's not an alien invasion film, and it has nothing to do with space, really. Therefore, it's a completely different kind of tokusatsu film. The movie's purpose was to merge the kaiju and tokusatsu genre at Toho with the Undersea Kingdom subgenre, which would probably attract more audience members. It was also meant for the audience to reflect on the state of Japanese patriotism and nationalism, while at the same time providing special effects-based entertainment. The film was released on December 22, 1963 in Japan under the original title Kaite Gunkan, meaning Undersea Warship. It was successful, making $2.9 million present-day dollars at the box office. It was the Japanese entry for the 1964 Trieste Science Fiction Film Festival and was the support feature for Destroy All Monsters in 1968. Atragon was re-released in Japanese theaters in 1973. It has a rating of 6.1 on that movie database with 719 votes at the time of the recording of this episode. It is well known and generally liked by the fanbase. Model kits and other reproductions of the Gotengo are common and popular. The original 94-minute film was cut down to 89 minutes for the English-language version. It was released in American theaters on March 11, 1965, and it was successful. It was released under the title Atragon, which was derived from Atragon, which was included in Toho's overseas promotions. This word was a Japanese phonetic contraction of either Atomic Dragon or Atlantis Dragon. However, the English-language version referred to the Gotengo as the Atragon, which then caused people to think the title of the movie was the name of the ship. It was on American television from time to time through the early 1980s. There are many forces at play. Captain Jinguji and the Mu Empire represent Old Japan. Admiral Kasumi and other characters represent the New Japan with their attitudes. This preoccupation imperialism versus post-occupation patriotism divide defines the film. Regret, atonement, self-sacrifice, personal honor, 
pride, redemption, and restoration of national prestige play a large part in the workings of the story. The theme of the film is that Captain Junguji is a model for how to proceed in life by renouncing blind nationalism. At the beginning, both the captain and the empress have the same goals. He changes his attitude and finds redemption not by bringing back the Japanese Empire, but by saving his daughter, defeating the Mu Empire, and saving the world. Likewise, Japan found a way to restore its national prestige after the war by joining the world community and embracing human rights. In the end, the Empress does not change her attitude and instead joins with the rest of her people to perish, instead of retreating from the battlefield to fight another day like the captain did. That concludes part one. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. Part two of the podcast is the opinion and analysis section. I first saw this film a few years ago and have seen it many times by now, and the story keeps getting deeper the more you think about it. It's the classic origin of an iconic vehicle, which is probably more well-known than the kaiju is in this film. The Gotengo is absolutely one of the most recognizable vehicles in the entire tokusatsu world. For me, though, the story is just as engaging as the vehicle is. It's the last movie before 1964 happens, which is one of the biggest years for film, and it's a huge dividing line in the eras of movie history. 1964 is when classic films started to change. One thing I wanted to mention off the bat is regarding Toshiro Mifune, Shinichi Sekizawa wrote the captain part of this movie with Toshiro Mifune in mind. I don't see enough evidence either way as to whether there was any real chance of that actually happening. I love Toshiro Mifune a great deal, but I don't see this working as well as with Jun Tazaki. Tazaki is a character actor more in line with what I would expect in this part if I just read the screenplay. Jun Tazaki plays the general or other military parts so often, so it seems more natural for me to want to just pivot to Jun Tazaki in general and focus more on him for a change. One of my few gripes about this movie happens only 27 seconds in, and I'm just going to get this out of the way. That noise with the screeching, squealing tires or whatever, um, you know, canned sound. You, you can look on YouTube for all these videos of all these canned sounds that drive various moviegoers insane. Anyway, I love how the Sekizawa comedy starts in so early in this film. Her taking her coat off to reveal her bikini, and then she sneezes when, she, when she's told to pause for the picture. That's very nice. And then in a shot recalling the famous moment in Rodan, when she is frightened in front of the camera as the picture's being taken, and we get to see this expression of fear on her face. And he says, well, this isn't a thriller. What are you doing? The score is one of the most memorable Ikafube scores that I've heard. I did notice the Godzilla vs. Gigan soundtrack did take some from this, and if you're going to take from anything, then this would be one to take it from. I really like Hiroshi Koizumi's serious role as the skeptical detective in the first part of the movie. That part where their photographers have the secretary and the police come in, and then she asks them, did you steal something? The police are here. That's more Sekizawa humor, most likely. When you have this much drama in the first part of a story, you have to write it well, you have to keep it interesting, which is exactly what is done here. And it's the same with them saying, Vapor Man? Oh, Geyser Man, then? And then the steam knocked from the hot plate when the little earthquake happened. 
I won't mention every little thing in this movie that, that's just peppered throughout with the humor, but I do want to make a good note of it because it is quite good and it is Sekizawa at his best now when he's in these movies. The fake journalist and Moo agent is Kenji Sahara. And there's a big giveaway that something weird is going on because he has his coat on and he still says he's cold and he's indoors. Ken Uehara plays the retired admiral and now shipbuilder. A very good actor, too. Now as Makoto, the captain's daughter, is serving the tea, she does a very nice little glance with her eyes when she hears her father's name mentioned. She's tense and uncomfortable. She asks the retired admiral if her father's really alive, and he says, no way. Then we get to talk about patriotism, or in this case, probably the better word is nationalism, even though the subtitle says patriotism. I think nationalism would be a better word. And he gives us the context. He starts giving us context about saying that young people now wouldn't understand it. And that speaks volumes. And it tells us about the divide between the old Japan and the new Japan. So then they get kidnapped by Akihiko Hirata, who is the other Mu agent. And we have our sort of James Bond scene as uh, the protagonists, upon seeing the submarine and the other Mu agents in the ocean, they realize the, the Mu Empire does exist. There's a scene that reminds me of Godzilla vs. Gigan. We have a group of people with the detective at the police station, and they're telling this extremely fantastical story. But it's likely they won't be believed. But then the evidence for their story is sent to them in the form of this tape about the Mu Empire. I feel like this is one of those Godzilla MonsterVerse movies now, and it's because of that slideshow that Monarch keeps showing everyone who seems to walk into the room. Oh, by the way, did you know about all this? The whole world was the Mu Empire's colony. And that's a pretty big connection to the uh, system of Imperial Japan. The similarities to Godzilla vs. Megalon are hard to not notice as well. We even get our Easter Island statues. The underground high-tech city with its own artificial sun, that's also in Megalon. And then the former admiral is surprised, not as much at the civilization that no one's ever heard of under the ocean, but by the fact that there is the Japanese submarine number 403 there. The Mu Empire has an aspiration, and that is to reclaim their former glory and to retake the surface world. This aspiration is just like the captain's aspiration, to give Japan its glory back. And that's the connection. The movie gives us nice visuals of the undersea kingdom there, but there wasn't enough time or money to visually establish the Mu Empire as much as they would have liked. The 600 people acting as Mu Empire citizens is impressive, though, especially when compared to when they did this in Godzilla vs. Megalon later, which was, you know, just a few women in questionable outfits that looked like KKK uniforms, and they were dancing around. It really doesn't um, ring the same when you see it here in this movie. It's so much better. The main point of this is that the Mu Empire is threatening the whole world, but the UN says nothing and they decide it's not important at all. But then the Mu Empire starts blowing things up. Mainly, they destroy Venice and Hong Kong. And I think if there was more time or money, I expect they would have tried to do something different with that in order to drive the point home exactly how dangerous the Mu Empire is. The UN nuclear submarine is called the Red Satan? Okay. The Moose submarine is able to dive much deeper, and the Red Satan is blown away by the pressure. And this is the way of giving humanity fewer and fewer options for defense, thus creating the need for the Gotengo. 
Like in many kaiju and tokusatsu movies, they float the idea of using nuclear weapons against the Mu Empire, but they decide, nah, moral and practicality concerns. Then the military brass decide, well, what about the Gotengo? The enemy did pretty much tell us that the Gotengo can defeat them, which not every enemy tells you what will defeat them. It's very nice of them. Kusumi is reluctant to tell them the location of Captain Junguji because of the issue of honor. He says that the captain revolted, which is dishonorable. This is the first case in the movie where, because of the issues of honor and patriotism, someone is reluctant to give up information. Then a stalker of the captain's daughter is captured, and it's Yoshifumi Tajima, who played the evil businessman Kumiyama in Mothra vs. Godzilla, which is great. Interestingly, the Yasukuni Shrine is mentioned because Amano only says his Imperial Navy number at first, and is what the soldiers referred to as a reservation number for the shrine. Yasukuni Shrine is pretty much the epicenter of Japanese nationalism, although this was before the spirits of the war criminals were put into the shrine. That happened in the late 70s. As soon as Kusumi tells Amano his rank, Amano salutes robotically and he goes into order-taking mode. Because of his nationalism, he is forced to tell them his name, which is something he had avoided and said he wouldn't do up until then. This is like Hiro Onoda, who demanded his superior officer tell him that the war is over. He is then forced to tell them that the captain is alive. On the plane later, one of our two photographers tells Officer Amano that Japan has renounced war in its constitution. This is after Amano says the location of the base is a Navy secret, and of course there's no Navy now because it's now the JMSDF. The set of the Mu Empire's high priest has a very Egyptian look to it, as does the rest of the Mu Empire. In an interesting twist, we see Japanese people are the Mu's slaves in this movie, and I can't help but notice the irony here, considering how many people the Japanese Empire effectively enslaved. To me, this movie seems to be telling the Japanese audience, oh, do you like this empire? Because it's not fun to be in this one, at all. It's, and it's, in other words, it's not good to be on the receiving end of an empire. On the boat to the island, Susumu, the photographer, asks Makoto, what's wrong, depressed? With a smile on his face. I found that really amusing. He's got a smile on his face a lot of the time they talk in that scene. The key line here is that it's an old-fashioned patriotism, where he says, people thought it effeminate to think of home. When everyone arrives at the base camp on the island, the lieutenant salutes him and is super formal and to the letter with military protocol. The admiral tells him, please relax, and doesn't salute back. These two people are on opposite sides of a time warp, with those on the island still in full war mode. We see an imperial flag in the camp, with the camera zooming in on it. It's making a point. This is the old Japan. 41 minutes in, we finally see the captain, Jinguji. It's nearly halfway through the film. In a way for me, this is when the movie starts. His white uniform is still 100% perfect-looking, crisp, and clean. I like how they filmed his entrance. He looks at Makoto, they show her looking at him, and he looks away, and looks to Kusumi and salutes Kusumi. That's surprising to us, but it's about pride and patriotism, so his family, long-lost family at that, is sidelined. The retired admiral says, this is your daughter, and he may as well have added, by the way, to that. The captain stares at her and then looks away which only affects us more, but it's just a warm-up to what's about to happen next. The retired admiral says the world needs the Gotengo, and Junguji says no way, 
because it's for Japan and only for Japan, and everybody's shocked. Kasumi says the war is over, long over, and Junguji says, not for us, it's not. Makoto is disgusted by and disappointed in her father and walks off. I would too. And Susumu, obviously a symbolic character for the new Japan, says, not even a kind word for your daughter. War crazy. And that's a powerful line. Junguji and his men are stuck in the old world and the old ways. He's so much that way that he's numb to feelings. Junguji asks who that was after he leaves, and Kusumi says effectively, well, it's his possible future son-in-law, which shocks the captain. 46 minutes in, we get to see the Gotango. This is a big reason why people remember and watch this movie. The vehicle upstages the kaiju in this film. What we see is a design that has incredible staying power in the minds of the fandom, which would show up in subsequent Toho movies, video games, etc. The details are what make it so cool. The drill on the front, which is operable of all the models that were made of this Gotango. There were five models of all different scales. The biggest one was over 16 feet long, which is huge. All the parts on the outside were remote-controlled and operable. An actual shipbuilding company built the biggest one. I dare say that's the most impressive. A person could fit inside that biggest model to operate the moving parts as well. The design of the fins is very good, and all of the little aspects of the Gotengo add character and individuality. Its abilities are individual with the electricity defense as well as the famous Absolute Zero Cannon. 50 minutes and 39 seconds in, there's a bigger reveal of the Gotengo and how cool it is. There's only one time you get to make an impression like this, and this is great. They absolutely nailed it. It's the part where the Gotengo surfaces from the water and then goes airborne, and that's just about the greatest part in the movie for a lot of people. It makes up for any flaws in other special effects aspects that this movie has. At the nice reception following that, we can assume something else is going to happen with the captain, right? There are conversational landmines coming, to be sure. Kusumi tells Junguji to drop the Admiral honorific because it touches an old scar. Japan's new constitution renounces war. And the captain asks, who made us? Well, that's not inaccurate to say, actually, because the Japanese constitution was written a lot of it by America. Kusumi delivers a big blow to the captain when he says, the 20 years after the war gave us time to think. Very good line. The captain then questions if the Gotengo has no purpose because he sees its only purpose is to help Japan reclaim its former glory. However, the retired admiral says not at all. The whole world needs the Gotengo. The world has changed. Defiantly, the captain says, I'll change it again. And that is resurgent nationalism right there. We'll change it again. He is defiant. He won't change because he is of the old ways. There was a scene that Ishiro Honda cut somewhere around here, and in it, Kasumi and Junguji get into an argument because Junguji wants to sacrifice Makoto to save the planet. And Honda, always thinking globally, said that the movie was about global problems, not personal problems. And well, that perspective shouldn't really surprise anybody who knows anything about Ishiro Honda. Then we get the scene, in my opinion, when Junguji and Makoto speak. She's utterly embarrassed to be his daughter at this point. His blind nationalism is repulsive to her. She regrets even seeing him again. Her impression of him is completely the opposite of what she thought of him. 
He tells her that he felt shame leaving the military and revolting, and he wants to atone for it. She says the war left her an orphan, and why would he want to make more orphans? In other words, when making another war. She is thinking about family and peace. He is thinking about war and honor. Then she says, you're just like the Mu Empire, totalitarians. However, does his behavior change after his daughter tells him this? No. Then Susumu has it out with him, too, after seeing Makoto's reaction. He delivers this great line about how the captain is a ghost wearing the rusty armor named Patriotism. And again, the subtitle should probably say Nationalism. That would be a more apt word. Then we return to the plot involving our fake reporter and the bomb that he has left there in the underground facility housing the Gotengo, and then he goes ahead and kidnaps Makoto and Susumu. It isn't until nearly an hour in that we see the Empress of Mu, played by actress Tetsuku Kobayashi. She looks very much the part. She, I don't know how somebody can look arrogant, but it does. And I think she actually does the, the I look arrogant look better than the leader of the aliens in Destroy All Monsters, which that's also a very pompous, uh, you know, aggressive woman lead part for the enemies. This is Kobayashi's only Toho film. At 1.02.12, one hour, two minutes and 12 seconds into the movie, there is a woman who's at the left of the Empress who says some unheard words into the Empress's ear about what to do with the prisoners. And she looks like Helen Mirren. No, get a picture of Helen Mirren. It looks exactly like her. You may recognize the high priest as the man who served the drink to Princess Salno on the plane in Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster, and he was also the one who had the part of skulking transitional Matango in Matango, among other parts. His last role was he was the prophet from GMK. We get the reveal of Manda, and it's a kaiju that was inserted into the movie by, you guessed it, Tomoyuki Tanaka. Some of the shots look better than others when it comes to Manda, and it depends on which model we're looking at, because they use multiple models. And really, they're more like puppets. The Mu Empire launches this attack, exiting from Mount Mihara, which is rather uh, dramatic, and the flying projectiles are a nice touch, savagely killing civilians as they try to escape, and the cruelty of the Mu Empire is definitely to be noticed here. In the next scene, some parts of the last war were reused. They were establishing parts of cities, and that was to show that the Muans are a worldwide threat still. When the Gotengo emerges from the rubble and drills itself through the doors to get out, the captain announces his new intention to destroy the Mu Empire. Now, why did he make that decision? It's because the Mu attacked him, and that made him realize either selfishly because they are after him, or unselfishly because he is now aware of the threat they pose and wants to protect others. The main reason, I believe, is because they kidnapped his daughter, on top of everything else. One of the best special effects moments is the cave-in of Tokyo. It looks good, despite the fact that it was supposed to have been done more slowly in order to look like the cave-in, for it was radiating out from the center of it. The plaster buildings and the support structures collapse very well, though. It's really nice. Another great scene is the destruction of all the ships in Tokyo Bay. The explosions are very effective. The Gotengo shows up and then scares off the Muans. 
Meanwhile, our kidnapped protagonists end up taking the Empress hostage due to high-powered explosives they find, but the Empress lets out Manda. I think the captain is able to redeem himself and lose some of his shame by saving Makoto. The crux of the matter here is that there are other ways to redeem yourself besides the nationalistic way, and in this way, he made his family his priority and found redemption. The Empress is very much like Imperial Japan. She is defiant, she says the Mu Empire will win, and that the heart of the Empire is stronger than just the people who are being killed. She even sits in the captain's chair for a little while, and she's been captured, and she's still defiant. The captain takes care of her by saying, we will attack you as long as you keep telling us to surrender. But we will listen to peace talks. This is going so far from the kind of life that he's lived up to this point. Manda then wraps itself around the Gotengo, and then they use the electric current to repel it, and then they use the Absolute Zero cannon to freeze it. The freeze cannon is used in the 2004 film Final Wars, with the Godzilla film as well. The Gotengo burrows into the seafloor to attack the heart of the Undersea Kingdom's power supply, which looks like a, a lot like Metropolis. It looks like a big generator room in that movie. The moment with the High Priest is not to be missed. He's been informed, uh, one of the people who's informing him is Akihiko Hirata, that the Gotengo is in the power room. And the High Priest says, fool, he can't be. And then Hirata and the other guy look at each other like, what? Like, what are we supposed to, you know, do with that answer? It's actually happening, so what are we supposed to do? The high priest says they're inferior to us. They can't enter the power room from outside. Like, there's no way that that can happen, therefore he has completely removed all possibility of it from happening. I think this is trying to draw a connection to the last days of the war. In Japan, there was a lot of time wasted, because the Japanese who were in charge of the war didn't believe it was possible to lose, so they held on far too long. They were the greatest people, so how could this be happening? It could have been just like when the higher-ups were told that they lost an important battle, and their reaction was just amazing because it demonstrates the disconnection from reality that's going on. A special effect that I don't see very often is the approach to the absolute zero cannon's effect on the individual Muin enemies. What happens is they spray them with the absolute zero cannon and then they're turned gradually into a matte painting. And I'm not sure what else they could have done to make this look better using technology at the time. Freezing things is kind of an interesting individual effect. I saw some complaints about it when I was researching everything and I see why they're complaining, but at the same time, the matte paintings aren't bad. I didn't expect them to go that direction though. The destruction of Mu was done by having a water tank, having it upside down, and then pouring dye and other stuff in. And you're turning it upside down and messing around with it. The regular water is on the bottom of the final image. And then you have all of this suffusion of all these clouds of stuff coming out from the water's surface. It looks very nice. The part where the Empress jumps into the water to die with her empire is a little tragic although it's mostly not. The interesting thing to point out is that they understand why she does it, especially the captain does, and the movie makes sure that we understand it. The movie revolves around blind nationalism and how it works and how it affects people. 
and she was not able to let go of her blind imperialism, so she perishes. Junguji, however, learns, and he survives. In 1966, there was an unmade film called The Flying Battleship, and it was a James Bond sort of movie crossed with another version of Atragon. The ship was called the Supernoa, and Latitude Zero has parts of Atragon in it too, as does Godzilla vs. Megalon, and so does War in Space. If there was one thing about this movie that I could change, I would probably have more scenes between Captain Jinguji and the other characters, particularly his daughter. And if they had just a little bit more emotion in between them, I think it would be better. I'd be happier with that result. I think it personalizes the movie more, even though that's not really the direction Ishiro Honda was going, but I, I don't think it would have hurt anything. I don't need a Godzilla and Minya embracing each other while it snows on them or anything that poignant, but just something in between that and what is in the movie now. Because this movie and the related topic up next are so close together, I'm going to switch to our related topic now, but I'll still be discussing the movie as it is important in the discussion of the, uh, of the topic anyway. In a lot of ways, this is a morality tale once you boil it down to its basic elements. That concludes part two. You're listening to KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. In part three of the podcast, I will be analyzing a topic that was either brought up in the film or was going on at the time of the film's release. I chose the topic of Hiro Onoda and Japanese holdouts. It's because this is the perfect topic for this movie. Both the captain in the story and Hiro Onoda are Japanese holdouts. Onoda is maybe the most famous Japanese holdout in Japanese history. He engaged in guerrilla warfare against the Philippines, and against individual Filipino citizens. Japan, to him, was the invincible land of the gods. Japan couldn't have lost as long as one Japanese person remained to fight. It was a fanatical illusion. And he was engaged in total blindness, plus fear that the Japanese military would punish him if he surrendered. In other words, he was perfect officer material. He became an officer. He learned guerrilla warfare. They sent him to the Philippines in 1944, one year before the war ended. He was forbidden to die by his own hands. The military told him, we will come and get you. Carry out your orders, even if you are reduced to eating grass. Americans landed and bombarded the Japanese base, and then remaining Japanese soldiers, some of them, went into the mountains to conduct guerrilla warfare. And, as it turns out, Hiro Onoda spent 29 years on the island of Lubang in the Philippines. Rats were everywhere. There were poisonous ants, bees, scorpions, snakes, rainy seasons, and many other awful things on this island. He and the other three men that he was with, they ate green bananas, they stole cows from farms, they boiled water to clean it, they captured small animals and ate those. They scraped up what they could. They rationed food. They kept thinking the Japanese military would come to relieve them. During this time, because Onoda was the one that stayed the longest, he killed 30 Filipinos and injured 100. They thought when leaflets were dropped in the region, saying that the war was over and everything, they thought that the leaflets were fake. 
and they thought the war was still going on this entire time. It was four of them in the beginning, and then one escaped. Letters were dropped from their families, even, and they also thought that this was tricks. One of the three remaining men was shot by a fisherman, and it resulted in him being crippled, and then he was killed by a Filipino who was at the beach at the wrong time. Loudspeakers kept going over the area, too, on helicopters and everything else, saying that the war is over, and they just didn't believe it, and it infuriated them because that's how the military attitude was then. They figured that Japan would contact them as well, but, well, that was them contacting them. Hiro Onoda was a huge star when he came home, but he realized all this that he had been thinking for almost three decades was in his head, and Japan was a prosperous, peaceful state, and scattering of leaflets was done by the Japanese government. There was a whole department that was in charge of doing this kind of stuff, and the idea in Japan was to get them back because they're victims in this whole thing. But the soldiers thought that this was the Japanese government saying that reinforcements were on their way. It's an odd way to say that, but when you're thinking that way, that is probably what you'd think. His brother even showed up and sang and over this loudspeaker trying to get attention. And then his voice changed a little bit while singing, and that was all that needed to happen for Hiro Onoda to think that that was fake too. Newspapers were dropped on them as well. Stacks of newspapers from the current times. And they thought that there would be no Japanese people left in this instance because they'd all gotten, you know, killed fighting. So these newspapers were fake because Japanese people would be gone if the war was over. And gee, this sounds like some really effective brainwashing from childhood. They even stole a radio and listened to that, and they didn't believe that. And I seriously would feel like such an idiot if it dawned on me that that's what I'd been doing for nearly three decades, was completely doubting everything the whole time. The third man was killed, and so Onoda was the only one left. And he kept encountering all these messages from his family. He finally made contact with a 24-year-old independent Japanese tracker, not affiliated with the Japanese government at all. And the man saluted him and told Onoda that he's Japanese and what's been going on. Then Onoda told the guy he'd only surrender when the superior officer told him to surrender. And that is a common thing back then with Japanese holdouts too. Once Onoda was read his orders by his superior officer, who long retired, and he wondered how the Japanese could have screwed the war up and lost. And he thought, so what was I doing here all of this time? I mean, th this would cause a pretty big mental crisis in my head, just realizing this. The town of Lubong was nice to him once he was rescued, and he even met the president of the Philippines who pardoned him for his crimes. And, well... Relations between Philippines and Japan improved a lot. Really, Onoda is a poster child for Japanese indoctrination. His brother admitted to the media that he didn't know if he should congratulate his brother or if he should tell his brother he's an idiot. Onoda left Japan a year later and moved to Brazil because he felt the Japanese attitudes were different. He thought that Japan was too commercial, too materialistic, and that's a nationalist opinion too. He became a cattle farmer in Brazil and died in his early 90s in, in the same country. 
I guess my take on this is I would feel like such a fool, even more than most other Japanese felt at the end of the war. They felt that the Japanese Empire's military, particularly the Imperial Japanese Army, screwed over everyone by making the decisions that were made at the time that were not good. The ones in charge, who were largely from the Imperial Japanese Army, they did not listen to the Imperial Navy when they said that the plans didn't work. The prevailing attitude at the time was that bombing Pearl Harbor would knock the Americans out so that the Americans wouldn't be meddling in anything anymore. Some in the Japanese nobility and the Navy did not agree with this assertion. They thought that America would be extremely mad. Plenty of Japanese people who were in these Navy positions, especially those who were educated in America and knew about America, the smart ones, like Yamamoto, knew not to take the Americans for granted, as if they're not some kind of threat. And that's the danger of the propaganda. It builds certainty. And if you're operating and making decisions with that kind of thinking, you're deluding yourself. So you had people in the army making decisions about how the Navy is supposed to fight their battles, and it's no wonder that the naval battles went the way they did. In episodes 3 and 4, they were the first episodes about Godzilla movies, the original film from 1954 and the 1956 King of the Monsters. Since these were contemporary issues, I tried to choose, and so I knew the occupation was the one I had to hit as far as issues. And I thought, well, way to start out with contentious issues right at the outset. I knew I had to get things absolutely right. Episode 4 was about the Tokyo War Crimes Tribunal. I knocked it out of the park. This is another episode that if you have the wrong person talking about that subject, you could end up getting a lot of misinformation. Old patriotism in Japan was nationalism, almost unlike any other society. You had Shinto, and then you had the meaning and the purpose of Shinto bent, and then you had racial superiority and the nation and religion all rolled up into one. Duty until death, die for honor rather than surrender, kill enemy troops until you're dead. If they capture you, kill yourself because getting captured is dishonorable. And if you aren't from the Yamato race, then, well, back then, you're not really considered as human as everybody else. As a result, POWs in Japan were not treated very well. If you were an American and you ended up being taken prisoner, you'd rather be in a Nazi-controlled German military camp rather than being a prisoner of war under the Japanese Empire. Generally, the level of brutality in the Pacific theater was beyond the pale. I would actually consider it worse than everything that went on in Europe. When only the divine origin and future of your race matters, every other race is targeted for death or enslaved or made a colony. And in episode four, I actually characterized the Pacific theater of World War II as a race war, and you would compare that to Europe, where that wasn't as much of a race war. It was more about a type of system, a government system, and it was how to organize society. It was a war of that kind. But the Japanese Empire was operating on different rules of engagement and different rules of war. The Geneva Conventions did not matter very much, and the safety for civilians or military personnel when they surrendered was generally uh, very questionable. When Hiro Onoda returned to Japan, a lot of people welcomed him home. And this is the whole media phenomenon. And it was just like the present-day media phenomenon that happened. 
The hunt for Onoda lasted years, of course. His family helped frame the situation as how Onoda was not a murderous guerrilla fighter, but more of a victim. Many of the Japanese sympathized with him, and they believed him to be a victim because they understood what he was going through. He's a relic of their collective past. He was so indoctrinated and afraid of surrendering that he kept on with the same attitude independently for so many years. Like a lot of Japanese heroes, he's a combination hero and a fool. He waited and kept fighting a war for that long to keep his honor. And in the meantime, Japan had restored its honor in a different way by joining the world community and working for peace. So what is the point here with part three? The captain from this movie and Hiro Onoda are both Japanese holdouts. They were so focused on their job that they forgot nearly everything else. Family, feelings, logic. They were so far gone that it took overwhelming pressure to finally pull them out of it. But they share the characteristic of they refused to believe what was right in front of them. There was resurgent Japanese nationalism going on at the time this movie was released. This essay came out and said all these positive things about the Japanese empire, about how it liberated the Asian peoples from Western imperialism. And this is a, something I mentioned in episode four as well. And in this, in many ways, was propaganda because the Japanese empire treated other Asians worse than the Western powers did in, gen in general. And replacing one empire with a more brutal empire really isn't going to help if you're the one who's being subjugated. The character of Captain Junguji, though, resonated with the Japanese public, just like the real-life man Hiro Onoda resonated with the Japanese public. They draw on the same Japanese national spirit. They knew the attitude that this one fictional character and this one real-life person had. But at the same time, they know that retired Admiral Kasumi is the one who's being real. This movie and Hiro Onoda's real-life story allow the Japanese to plug into a sort of national nostalgia. It's a chance to reflect on everything, while at the same time, they don't want to go back to the old days, when the empire was enabling the destruction of a huge portion of the country. I encourage you to look up more on this topic, just like all the rest of the topics that I've covered on the show. But these, uh, these stories, you almost have to hear it yourself as far as the Japanese holdouts to really understand it. And in Japan, they understood it a lot better. But for foreigners or other people who haven't been through this kind of experience, it's kind of like, it strikes me as kind of like World War I in Europe, where it was just this virulent nationalism and we're going to get ourselves all killed over it because it's that important. Regarding economic figures of note, in Japan, GDP growth was 8.47% in 1963, a very big year. And yes, it is showing how big and commercial and mm, materialistic, whatever, that Japan was becoming. I mean, if that's the way you want to characterize people getting jobs and getting money and getting technology to make life easier. I would like to dedicate this episode to Jun Tazaki, the great Japanese character actor who has been in many tokusatsu and kaiju movies. This is his best performance in a tokusatsu movie. 
His final appearance was in Akira Kurosawa's Ron from 1985, which was fantastic. If you haven't seen that, I encourage you to definitely give it a watch sometime. Next week on Kaiju Vision Radio, I will debut Behind the Scenes Bonus Feature 2, which is an in-depth explanation of the section in Part 1 about expansion and reinforcement of style. It's my own way of making sense of these movies as they progress. The next episode of this podcast will be 2017's and 2018's Godzilla Anime Trilogy. Godzilla, Planet of the Monsters, Godzilla, City on the Edge of Battle, and Godzilla, the Planet Eater. That's right, all three at once in one big episode. Over the years, Toho has subverted expectations plenty of times, and this episode will be about unpacking what Toho was doing when they went a different direction. I'd like to send a shout-out to our patron, Sean Stiff. Thank you, Sean, so much for your support. I really appreciate it. He donated at the Kaiju Visionary level. Donating is worth it. You get the inside track to what's going on in the show. You get to message me personally, see what's going on, ask me anything. If you'd like to send some feedback, I'd love to hear from you. The email address is feedback at kaijuvision.com. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Kaiju Vision Radio is available on Google Play, iTunes, Stitcher, Blueberry, TuneIn, Podcast Addict, YouTube with scenic videos, and on kaijuvision.com. If you like the podcast, please donate on Patreon. I'm Brian Scherchel, and this is KVR Kaiju Vision Radio. See you next time.